Well, today we begin a brand new series called Seven Signs. And around here, we like to, we like to present God's Word in this format, in the form of series. It allows us to kind of focus on a certain topic, stay on it for a little while, and look at it from a bunch of different angles. And we like to be looking weeks in advance. Like right now, we are, we are probably, we have every message lined up until 2021, um, but we'd like to be even further than ahead, ahead than that. We just finished this series called Lost in Translation, where we looked at some of the common phrases and the common concepts that, as Christians, we understand, but not everyone. It's not self-explanatory just to everyone. And so our prayer is, is that you would find the messages that are presented, we would, you would not find them just engaging, but something that you can take and you can apply to your everyday life. Not just add to your head knowledge, but something that you can use. Well, like I said before, we're beginning this new series called Seven Signs. And over the next seven weeks, we're going to be reading from the book of John. Now, John was one of Jesus' original disciples. John wrote one of the, one of the four Gospels. We know it as the book of John or the Gospel of John, or, or which also means the good news, according to John. And so in his gospel, John details some of his experience in following Jesus. Now, often when a writer writes a book, it comes from this place of need. They, 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 they look and they see, here's, a, here's an area, here's what our audience wants to hear. And they feel like there's this gap that their audience needs filled and they, they need to get their message across. I read an article the other day from the author of the Twilight series of books and movies. Stephanie Meyer is a Mormon lady that wrote this whole series of books about this teenage girl who falls in love with a vampire. Now, honestly, never read a word of any of the books, never watched a minute of any of the movies. I read the synopsis of it, and I'm like, eh. However, in the interview, she said that she saw this need by the general public to have a story of true love. And the idea is kind of out there, right? This teenage girl and a vampire. But she obviously saw something. She was obviously correct in seeing the need because people bought over 100 million copies of these books. The five movies that followed grossed more than 3.3 billion, that's billion with a B, billion dollars at the box office. This, in the same way, about a decade ago, The Hunger Games, this, this series that was very, very popular with young people and even some older people, it also sold more than 100 million copies of the books and also spawned a movie franchise that, that brought in over $1 billion. And the author of that series said in an interview that she felt that the, the, that the public needed this book that highlighted the dangers of war and, that, and the, the manipulation of the media. And so whether you're into these, this, these series or these books or, or not, there's no denying that based on the massive success each has had, they recognize that there was something that would resonate with their audience, with their readers, and they got their stories out there. And anytime someone sits down to write a book, they have that in their head. They, they come from this place where they recognize that there's a need, that there's something my audience needs to hear and that they will resonate with. And that's not just true of modern-day contemporary writers, but it was also true for John. 
And so when John sits down to write his book, we know as the Gospel of John, he has this theme that he's got underlying everything, and it's about belief and faith. He's got that in mind. Now let me tackle this tension of belief and faith for a moment. And maybe you don't even realize there is a tension. Because this idea of faith and belief gets a little muddied when it comes to Christianity. Because these words, belief and faith, we don't just use them at church. We use them outside of church. In fact, we tend to think of them differently away from church. Because we all know, know what it means to have uh, faith in something or someone or belief in someone or, or something. Whether it be at work or whether it be at school. You know, like, for example, if you're in school, you believe that your teacher will give you a test on Friday. Why do you believe that? Well, for the last eight, ten weeks in a row, every Friday, two o'clock, there's a spelling test. So I believe, and I have every reason to believe, that there will be another one on Friday at two o'clock. Or you get paid on a certain day of the week. And you have faith that this will continue to be true because you've been working with this company for 30 years and they've never missed a paycheck yet. So you have faith in them. We believe or have faith based on evidence. And as many of you know, I had surgery on my heart a year ago. And going into that surgery, I had faith and I had belief in the surgeon that was going to perform the operation. And that faith and that belief didn't, didn't just come from hope, it came from evidence. First, my cardiologist had referred me to this surgeon. Obviously, my heart specialist thought this was a, a good person to go to, that they had the confidence in this person. And so, if they had sent nine or ten people to them who didn't make it, the confidence would not be there, and I would hope they wouldn't refer me to this person. So, the, in the hospital that I was having the surgery at, they had this, this, this hugely successful practice of heart surgeries. I also knew someone who had had the exact same procedure at the exact same hospital, and they seemed to be doing pretty good. Also, I went to ratemd.com, which is a website where you can go. Most doctors have had patient reviews where they rate them from one to five stars. So I looked up my surgeon, and he was like a 4.7 out of five, which I thought is great because it was way better than 1.2 or something like that. So combining all the information gave me this strong belief and this strong faith that as a doctor, that as far as I was concerned, they were more than capable of operating. Which, let's, let's face it, it's much better than just hoping, not knowing anything, just hoping that this doctor is competent. And then as you lay down on the table in the last moments as the anesthesia sort of makes you doze off, the last thing you hear is, does anybody know which one the scalpel is? Also, what we put our faith in comes from the person who gives us the information. So imagine your car breaks down one day. And your neighbor to the left comes on over, and he's a mechanic, owns his own garage. And he comes over, he's been a mechanic for 30 years, he pops up, open the hood, he takes a look under, and within a few seconds, he goes, I know exactly what's going on here. Just give me the parts, and I'll fix it for you, no problem. On the other side of you, you have another neighbor. It's the neighbor's kid who loves cars. He's nine years old, and he walks over, he looks under your hood, and says, I can fix that. Now, they're both pretty passionate about it, but... Which one are you going to put your faith in? I mean, it's, it's, it's quite obvious. The person, the person where the, the, that, that presents the evidence is the one that we kind of put our faith in. It, it matters a lot. 
But when it comes to church and, and our spiritual life, faith and belief, they sort of take on this different definition. Because many of us grew up with this idea that the evidence for Christianity, well, it's actually not that important. You just need to believe. I'm sure you've heard that before. You know, you just have to have some faith. Maybe you just need more faith. You just, you just need to believe. Which you will admit that when you were a kid, that worked out okay because your Sunday school teacher or a pastor came and said, you know, you just need to believe. And they were an adult, so it was like, I, I, I can go with that. But you've gotten older, and it's gotten harder to just believe. And when someone says you just have to believe, that's gotten a little more difficult. So at times, if you're honest, your faith can seem a little bit like a strong hope than it does confidence. Or how, you would be, or how you would define belief anywhere else in your life. And so today, if you would say your faith in God looks a little bit more like hope, let me tell you, it's so much better than that. It's so much better than that. There will be times, trust me, there will be times where you will have to go on faith. Because there just is, our knowledge is limited and there's just not an answer anywhere. But when John wrote this gospel, he tells of his journey with Jesus, how Jesus took him from a fisherman and made him a disciple. And when he followed Jesus, it wasn't completely just based on blind faith. A friend of mine used to be a youth pastor in the London area. And he was telling me one day that he decided to do a little bit of an experiment. And he had this friend who was an atheist, didn't believe in God at all. And he brought him in one night, and he set up this debate, his students versus his atheist friend. And obviously, the atheist came in, he was prepared, but he wanted to see how his students would do. It was his whole youth group versus an atheist. And he says to me, they got destroyed. Like, they, the atheist picked apart their argument piece by piece, almost surgically. And so... It was, it was kind of risky because his, his students were feeling a little dejected afterwards and a little shooken, to be honest. So he dismissed his friend and he sat down with his group and he said, guys, the evidence is so there. There's so much evidence to prove the existence of God that you could go toe-to-toe with anyone, but you were not prepared because no one's ever explained or shown you the evidence. So they got to work. For many of our students are or for many, uh, many of us, perhaps we were told, you just need to believe. And then as soon as they, they head off to college and they take one philosophy class, all of a sudden their belief is challenged and they don't know how to defend it and it unravels piece by piece because no one showed them the evidence. And John, who writes this gospel we're studying, says, I didn't follow Jesus because of faith. And over the course of the next seven weeks, we're going to see John's going to show us that there is a difference between because of faith and by faith. And so John, years after Jesus' death, in fact, it's likely that John wrote this gospel 55 to 60 years after Jesus dies. And John is an old man, and he decides there's a gap, There's there's this need that I need to write. And his audience, he decides, needs to hear his account of what happened. This is despite the fact that Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, has already written the gospel of Matthew. And Mark, who was, who was very close and, and was an eyewitness to Peter, had been dictated from Peter his gospel. 
And Luke, who was a doctor who was so into details, he was an investigator. He talked to everyone who Jesus talked to, and he actually traveled with Paul on the mission field. He wrote down everything that he could find, and he wrote the Gospel of Luke. And so maybe at the start, John's thinking, I don't know if I need to write my account. But years later, John decides, I'm going to put this down on paper. Again, he's an old man at this point. Peter's dead, Matthew's dead, Paul's dead. He's outlived pretty much all of his friends. He's the lone survivor of the original group of 12. And he's been exiled, they say, at the end of his life, he's exiled for his faith to an island. Now, scholars believe that John died of old age, the only of the 12 disciples to die a peaceful death. And so John decides he's going to give his account. But he doesn't want us to just know what happened. He wants you to know why it happened. And he tells you right at the end of the gospel. Now, I studied journalism in college. And in journalism, you're taught that when you're writing a story, you put the most important information right at the start. That, that's called your lead. And then the more important the information, the higher up in the, in the article it goes. And the least imp- important information, just some of the details, goes to the very end. That way, if your reader starts reading and they stop reading, they've got what they need to know from the article. But that's not what John does. He puts this incredibly important part right at the very end of his article. What, dr- what it drove in my, 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 my journalism professor nuts But here's what he says, the last two verses in the chapter, John 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. And he's saying, listen, I spent a lot of time with Jesus. I mean, I lived with him, ate with him, traveled with him. I devoted my life to following him. These old eyes, they've seen a lot. I've not written down half of what I've heard or half of what I've seen. And there were many, many other things that I've seen that I could have recorded. And it's interesting because he uses this word signs instead of miracles. That's that's important. We're going to come back to that. But he says there were other signs that were not recorded in this book. And he doesn't mean by he doesn't mean Bible when he says book. He means the transcript he's writing, the this this book of John. And so he says, I have chosen these ones because verse 31. But that these are written that you may believe. That's our word. Believe. John isn't saying here, you just need to believe. Or you just need to have more faith. No, he's saying it's better than that. He's saying, I'm writing these things down because I want you to see, I want you to consider, based on my firsthand testimony, that there is evidence in my testimony to believe. Which, naturally, say, believe what? Believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, this verse is the last recorded in his gospel. For everything up to that place, he was building a case that we're going to dive into over the next seven weeks. And the reason he's writing is because it's bigger than your need for a teenage true love story. It's bigger than your need for an apocalyptic story of war. But, but your belief that Jesus is who Jesus claimed to be, and that by putting your trust in that, that you will have everlasting life in his name. 
So in his concluding statement, he wants you to see that he came to faith, that he developed a faith over time as he saw and experienced the signs of Jesus. The evidence pointed to the, to the, the fact that Jesus was who Jesus said he would, who he said he was. And once he considered the evidence, once he considered the, the, the witnesses and the signs, once he considered that, he came to this conclusion that Jesus was who Jesus said he would be. And he wants to give you his testimony that you too may believe. Now what you need to know is this. If you've ever struggled with believing in Jesus, because that's not something we love to confess in church. But come on. I mean, you know that at some point, your faith at times has wavered and you've wondered if, if everything that you're believing is actually true. Or maybe you're, maybe, maybe you're there right now. You've struggled at times with your faith and, and maybe you've even felt guilty about it. That you didn't have as strong a faith as everyone else seems to have. I want you to know you're not alone and there's nothing wrong with you. You have to consider this. The disciples that walked with Jesus, that, that struggled, they struggled with belief. They, they, they spent every day with him and yet they still struggled with belief. And John, who was one of Jesus' closest, he was in the, his inner circle, says, I didn't just start following Jesus because of belief. In fact, if you read through the Gospels, you'll discover that the disciples, they flip-flopped quite often. They would believe, and then they questioned, and then they would believe, and then they would question. And then they would believe, and then Jesus was, was crucified on the cross. And then they didn't believe anymore. In fact, they thought it was all a sham, that they had fallen for the sham, that the person who said that they were the Messiah had, was gone. And that they had given the last three lives, years of their lives to nothing. Because in fact, Jesus says, I will arise on the third day. And they were not standing there waiting for it to happen. In fact, they were so surprised when they actually saw him again. And so then, there's you. Who at times is like, I don't know if I believe. There's nothing wrong with you. But John wants you to know that despite his doubts, along the way there were many signs that convinced him, and some of those signs didn't have the significance until later. And his goal was to present them in a way that if they convinced him, this is what his thoughts are, if they convinced me, maybe they will convince you. And so he chooses to record in his gospel seven signs that helped him come to faith. And it's interesting that he doesn't call them miracles because you could interchange these words, miracle and, and, and signs, at any time. But he chooses the word signs because John knew something. He knew, and he, he, probably, he did, probably didn't know it at the time, but he knew after having years to reflect in, that these signs had some significance. John realizes that these were more than good deeds, in fact, he probably at times wondered, Jesus, why, why did you heal that guy, but you didn't heal that guy? Or, or why did you do this supernatural thing, but you didn't do it over here? Did, Jesus, were you showing off when there was a bigger crowd at times? Or were all these things that you did, were they random or were they premeditated? Was there purpose behind them? And at some point, John comes to the realization that these were more than miracles. That these signs had a purpose. And that that purpose was to point people to the identity of who Jesus was. God in the flesh. So here we go. We'll jump in. 
Sign number one. John lays it out for us in John chapter 2. It says, The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. So Jesus is invited to this, this wedding, and his mother Mary is, is there. And as we'll see later, she's probably involved in helping with the wedding, uh, make sure it goes smoothly. Maybe she's a co-hostess. Maybe, maybe she's uh, involved in the catering of it. Verse 2 says, And Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. So John recounts the story, and it's not secondhand. He's, he's saying, we were actually right there at the wedding with Jesus. I witnessed this first sign firsthand. Now, weddings during Jesus' day would typically last between five to seven days. Often the weddings took place in the fall, like right around now. Because by this point, the harvest has all come in, and most people could kind of clear their minds of all the work they, they would normally have to do. And so they had the time to actually spend five to seven days celebrating the, 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 the newlywed couple. And they were, so they were a little freer. The nights were a little cooler so they could, they could be out and it was comfortable to be out and, and hang out with everybody. And so many times the entire village was involved in these wedding celebrations. It was, it was huge. So really realizing that these were big, multi-day celebrations, what happens next is devastating to the hosts. Verse 3, the wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother told them, they have no more wine. Now, this is embarrassing. It's like maybe at your wedding, running out of the roast beef or running out of the wedding cake or whatever. But so Mary, who's instrumental somehow in making sure that this whole wedding goes off without a hitch, she turns to Jesus in her time of need. Now, somehow she knows that Jesus could provide what, what they needed in that moment. Maybe she's done this before. Maybe she's at home, maybe she was making some muffins one time, and she looked at the recipe, and the recipe called for eggs, and she looked in the fridge, and there's no eggs, and food land is closed, and so all of a sudden, Jesus comes through and saves the muffins. Either way, she knows Jesus can solve the issue, and Jesus responds like this. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. And he calls her dear woman which is softer than the NIV or the King James Version of the translations, which just simply states, woman. Now, I don't suggest this if you're, if you're talking to your mom. I don't suggest answering her as woman. That's not going to go well. And it kind of seems offensive when we first read this, but not in the manner in which it was delivered. You see, it was very much a gesture of respect at that time. It would be more like saying, my lady. And so he doesn't just go, mom. My friends are right here. Come on. No, he says, my lady or a woman. And, and then he says, that's not our problem. I mean, he's thinking, my time has not yet come. This is not how I envisioned this, mom. It's, it's like asking Superman to use his heat vision to warm up some pizza pockets. It's like, I got, I got bigger things on my plate. I got a bigger mission ahead of me. I, I don't know if you know this, but I'm the Messiah. This isn't how I was going to reveal that. But sometimes, sometimes it matters who asks. Sometimes you do things you never thought you would do, depending on the person who asks you. Ask any dad who sat at a tea party because his daughter asked him to. As he sits there and she puts barrettes in his hair and there's a stuffed animal on one side and stuffed animal on the other side. And this big macho guy is sitting having a, a tea party. Because we know it depends on who asks. 
And Mary likely just smiles and says, in verse 5, but his mother told the servants, just do whatever he tells you. And I imagine as, as John is writing this, it maybe, and maybe he's dictating it for someone to write for him. But as he's recounting this, he thinks back fondly. Because at some point he realizes that what's about to happen was the perfect way for Jesus to reveal that he was the long-awaited Messiah. Which, for you or I, it kind of honestly seems a little odd. Like, I would have thought Jesus would have came out and done some sort of miraculous healing, maybe like multiple healings, or, or maybe he's just out there, a whole bunch of people around, and he just walks out onto the water and just walks across the water just in front of everybody. Or, but turning water into wine at a wedding? But John's got some time, he's got some perspective on, this, on his side, and he knows, looking back, it was the perfect way for Jesus to be introduced to who he was. Verse 6. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. See, the family who the wedding was for was probably, they probably had some money and they were very devout Jewish people. And according to the Jewish law, they would be required to clean their hands before celebrating, which we didn't really understand so much before this crazy year, but we can't go into any building now without washing our hands. I'm thinking actually for the church, maybe getting two big stone jars, filling them with hand sanitizer and just having people dip their hands in and come in maybe like this. But those stone jars, they were commonplace. They were always there at a wedding celebration. They were required by the Jewish law to keep in step with their rule of faith. But these stone jars were symbolic to the rules and traditions that Jesus was coming to replace with a new covenant. And Jesus, in his first public display, uses something that would soon be replaced to point to something that would be better. See, God's covenant with the people of Israel in its time was perfect, but it was temporary. It was necessary for its time. But through Jesus, God was about to bring something new, a new covenant. And these jars were symbolic of the old covenant, sacrificial system. But something new, something better was on the horizon because Jesus was ushering in a new day. Verse 7, Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. Now the guests of the wedding, they had no idea what was going on. They had no idea the significance of what was happening right in front of them. Jesus was doing away with the old and filling them with something new. But it was a very understated, significant way to begin his ministry. It says, when the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. Verse 9. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though, of course, the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. So he'd never seen this before. He said, a host always serves the best wine first. Then when everyone has a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. Because at that point, they don't re actually realize that it's not as good. Because they, they've had a little too much to drink. But you have kept the best until now. And God has as well. 
See, the old covenant set the, new, set the table for the new covenant in the same way that the original wine had set up, set up for the new, better wine. And so Jesus uses this metaphor right at the wedding in the village of Cana to foreshadow that there was something new was here. The best had been saved for last. This is often attributed as Jesus' first miracle. But it was more than a miracle. It was a sign. A sign at the time that would not be so self-evident, but it pointed to something and somebody that they had been waiting for. Here's how the story ends. Verse 11. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. There it is. They believed in him. Why did they believe? Not because Jesus said you need to have more faith. Not because he said you just need to believe. They believed in him because of what they saw. They had a reason to believe. This was the first of seven signs that John would record. And for you, for me, we don't have the privilege of being at a wedding in Cana. We didn't see it with our own eyes. But for most of us, our faith came through what we heard, through what we read. But we have been invited to take the testimony of people that were actually there, people like Matthew, people like Thomas, people like John, and then combine that testimony with the things that the Holy Spirit reveals to each of us. But John, as an old man, wrote his account with future generations in mind, not just so you would know what happened, but that you would believe. Again, he says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you have life in his name. Maybe you're not convinced, but our goal in this series is that through the testimony of someone who came to the realization that God was right there in his midst, that you would, like John did, believe and have life in his name. Let's pray. Lord, as we read through John's account, Lord, you came and you humbled yourself and you came onto this earth. And you came to show us not just how to live life to the fullest, but you came to show us how to have eternal life. And so, Lord, I pray for those that are out there that are still skeptical. I pray for those that are not sure where they are with their faith. Not sure if they still believe God. I pray that they would just keep their eyes and their their minds and their hearts open to what you may have to say to them today. God, I pray as we continue to read over the next six weeks through John's gospel, God, I pray that you would just continue to use your Holy Spirit to prompt people, to, to make, make some things that are a little bit muddy, make them clear so that they would also see the evidence in front of them and believe and ultimately have everlasting life. God, we ask this in your name. Amen.